Welcome to the On Course Podcast, presented by New England Golf Journal. I am Sean Melia. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Jim McCabe. Jim, how you doing? Very well. Very well. Beautiful summer day. What's, what's not to be doing well about? It's early August. There is a odd, I wouldn't say a chill in the air because it's been a million degrees here, but it's getting that nice little crisp feel. Air's dry. A lot of golf still ahead of us. I try to tell myself in August, I used to be a teacher, August 1st was one of my least favorite days yeah. of, of the year. I called August I one giant Sunday. called it July 32nd. I tried to extend July as long as I could. But so much golf still ahead of us. Fall is great. Sometimes this opening segment, I prep you. I might give you a little, like, here's what I'm thinking about talking about. Today, I did not, but you were about to just go on a little bit of a rant. A little bit. And it's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about today, so I told you, save it. I want to just ask you about your ideal pre-round experience. So you've got as much time as you need. You've What facilities do you want? Like, what what is the best way for Jim McCabe, the golfer, to step on that first tee and be 100% ready to play uh. his best <laughs> golf? What, what, do you, what do you need? What do you want? How much time? I, Go. I, I, a friend of mine who know me well, know that I am... You, your tea time is your arrival time is one hour before your tea time. Okay. So some gentleman just told us his tea time is ten, say ten thirty in the morning. Okay, be there at nine thirty. Why? Why that? And do you? Oh, you must pound balls and this and that. I said no. It's <laughs> it's the you you go in the pro shop you you and i tend to play places that i know people at i love people i love that that's why i love golf cuz so many people that i really like play it it's all about renewing acquaintances with the head pro the assistant pro the manager the locker room attendant or if it's just a local muni to renew yourself with the putting green and, and why you love this place that you're playing, it is putting on your shoes. Don't don't just rush through it. You put it on. There's a there's a <laughs> make sure you have your correct your one marker. That's all yes. We, that's all we put in our pocket. Yep. Two, two T's. Your a Scottish short, coin. My right? Scottish coin. Yep. A short T, a long T, and a a longer a T. Not the long long ones, but a long T. Short T, and you know the correct divot to fix a rupper. Make sure you have a towel because I tend to lose those like crazy. Yep. If it's a day that's gonna be maybe rainy, do you make sure you have a rain jacket or a second pullover? <laughs> or so? Just make sure you're all prepared because in, invariably I play with people who want. They come in as as few of my friends are famously come flying in one minute before tea time and we all have those friends. Yes, and get on the first tee and ask for a tea, get on the first green ask for a maca, <laughs> get on the second fairway and second green. Oh, do you have a divot tool? I like to be prepared. Listen, I'm I'm how I play is how I play. That has nothing to do with my prep time. My prep time is all about the experience and yep. being part and just being being ready. And if if you're at a place that's turning out their tea times every ten, eleven, twelve minutes, I usually try to get on the tee as soon as the group ahead of me is hit and walk toward the fairway. I'm not one. I, I don't 
don't understand these people who are still on the putting green and you're yelling over, hey, Billy, get over here. We're on. We're, we're, we're up. up. <laughs> and then and then they want to establish the game and what we're doing. I'm not. I'm actually that's not one part of my routine. I just go along with whatever gets talked about. But one hour, an hour. It sounds it, like a, a good forty five minutes of, of, of chatting, of catching chatting, up, shaking hands. How you been? How's the family? <laughs> Getting settled. Uh, and if you're at a place where you are gonna bless with having a caddy, because I play some places where we might have a caddy. Sure. Meeting the caddy, explaining to them, take the drive, the head cover off the driver and keep it off because it's coming out every hole, <laughs> maybe in our par three too. So yeah, I like to, I like to take a deep breath and just enjoy the whole experience. I love it. Do you? Are you? Will you hit balls? You just I limber up, will, limber up, and I go. Will, I will occasionally hit a few wedges and stuff. That's a that's about that's it. it. Uh, but I love, I do love the putt. Yeah. So I will roll, roll, roll some. But you know, I I do, I do play enough where I always feel. Listen, I, I, I what you're gonna get is what you're gonna get. Whether I hit balls for an hour or two or three minutes, I'm more about the experience and the people and Just getting to know the. If there is a as we as I call them, and as we call them in New England, if, if there's a starter, mm-hmm. you, you want to meet them, and you'd like to. I like to always hear like people who might be ahead of us. Yep, I had a starter the other day that it regaled me with the group ahead of me had three generations, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, cool! Son, a son, father, and grandfather. Yeah, and the same four foursome. Thought that was fantastic, and yeah, I I don't like I don't. I can't be I can't be rushing to my first tee. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. That's I can't say I'm surprised that <laughs> that the hour, the bulk of the hour is spent just settling in and uh-huh. being in a place and chatting Absolutely. with people and uh, and just enjoying being around the game as a as a lifetime golfer and as someone who writes for a living uh, yeah. and tells stories for a living. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, I I also know the stress of like waiting around for for a friend to to show up and you're on the putting green and there's no sign of them and right. maybe you can see the parking lot and you're waiting for them Where to are they? to peel in. I have a couple of friends I I've, I've started to think about like do I just give them a the wrong tea time? Well, 20 that, minutes that's a earlier. little bit of a strategy. I do that sometimes I, as <laughs> as we all know people who think it's going to take them oh, I'm only a 25 minute ride. Well, yes, but sometimes the lights are red and sometimes <laughs> there is traffic and sometimes yep. there is a fender bender. That tw- it's, I usually tack on 20 minutes on top of the 25. Yeah. Sure. So if you're early, I mean, getting to a place early never phases me. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of a good strategy. It's kind of almost like what time's our plane leave? Oh, we have a 7, seven o'clock <laughs> flight when actually we have an 8.05 flight. But a little, little white lie gets you there early. Yep, exactly. All right, well, let's let's bring in Mark Plummer, main amateur golf legend who was talked to us about his time playing decades of amateur golf and playing Tiger Woods in the 1995 USAM semifinal at Newport Country Club and, and a bunch of other things. So that's that's next. Let's bring in Mark Plummer. I want to welcome in Mark Plummer to the On Course podcast. Mark, thanks for taking some time this morning to chat with us about Maine golf and, and your illustrious career. You're more than welcome. Good morning to you. Well, if 
I was telling Sean, I said, I think of amateur golf as the heart and soul of golf is the amateur game. And when I think of New England amateurs, honestly, I'm a Massachusetts guy, but I think Mark Plummer. And I actually had to go through the resume here just to pick out the numbers. Pretty impressive, Mark. We figured you've won, I think if we're right, you've won a state championship in some division in five decades, maybe is it six, going back to your junior amateur championship in Maine. So let it roll. How have you been able to keep such consistency? Well, I play a lot. That helps. (laughs) (laughs) I play probably five or six days a week and fortunate to go to Florida in the wintertime. So I've been able to keep my game sharp or sharper year round so it's you no know, just playing a lot of golf i think has helped out and i've kept myself in pretty good shape and i've been fortunate not to have any any injuries and so i've kept my game it's not quite as sharp as it used to be but it's not too bad right now what so just just to kind of give a quick so 69 you went a junior am and then you went 13 main amateur championships i've heard interviews where you talking about kind of you mentioned going down to florida not something you did as a as a younger as a younger person dealing with main winters what what was your kind of mindset short season playing in in a playing kind of a short competitive season you said you played a lot of golf just can you talk about the the rhythm of a main golf season well, it was one good thing about it is you, uh, I mean, you were just chomping at the bit to get out in the springtime. And so you, you kind of rebooted during the wintertime and it was always fresh coming out in the spring and you couldn't wait to play the first time and spent the winters basically just trying to stay fit. And then come April, go out, start hitting some golf balls and wait for the golf courses to open up. But we didn't have much of a junior program back then in Maine. We had we had a Maine junior championship and a Maine schoolboy championship. And actually, the schoolboy championship was a one-day event. And that was a medal play tournament. And that was the qualifier for the junior tournament, which was the next day. And that was match play. So really, a whole turn- tournament schedule for juniors was uh, three days. Uh, so that was that was about it. Now the kids seems like they got two or three tournaments every week that they plan. Yeah. But uh, so I ended up playing a lot of golf with the uh, older fellas because the Maine State Golf Association had a very active weekly schedule. They had tournaments every weekend, so I'd play with some of the older guys in those, and that was that was the competition that I had to play in until I get a little bit older. What's the the competition? Is that still what drives you, even at this age? Yeah, I I, I get I'm pretty competitive. I don't I don't play much of a tournament schedule anymore. I play senior events up here in Maine and a few other regular events, but I pretty much stay stay north of Kittery. I haven't <laughs> haven't been out of state to play in any tournaments in yeah. quite some time, but kind of been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. So I'm kind of happy just staying home and playing at my home course at Augusta Country Club. You've won so many. Does any particular state championship sticks out and it uh, more special than some of the others? 
Yeah, a couple of them. The first one, obviously, it was 1973 at it. Riverside over a fellow who's now a Massachusetts golfer, Bruce Catter. Oh, yeah. The other one's probably 1989. I quit drinking in uh, 1988, and that was that was my first main amateur after I quit drinking, and I en- I ended up winning that one. That was that was pretty important to me because I I just had the feeling that once I stopped drinking, I was going to be a mess and not be able to play competitive golf, and that was very important to me. Wow. The when I talk to really good amateur players, I mean, they just love to keep playing in 30s, 40s. And then the reality sets in, oh, my goodness, these kids half my age, how'd they get so good, so young, so fast? You wanna, you still, in your 40s, were able to win a bunch of, a bunch of amateurs, and, and it wasn't for lack of young players because they had them up there. Uh, we, we all know they had good young players. How'd you continue to handle the kids when you got into your 40s and late 40s oh boy i don't know i as i said i i've always tried to keep myself in shape and sometimes experience wins out over youth (laughs) and i just been able to stay competitive and keep an active schedule so i guess maybe i was a little more comfortable playing in the tournaments and some of the younger kids was sometimes their first or second main amateur and i've been of course, playing in them since the 70s. So I think that had a lot to do with it. But now with the, the great junior programs we have up, up here in Maine, these kids come, I mean, they come really ready to go when they get to the Maine Amateur. They've been playing junior tournaments for for years. we got a couple of players right now. I Cole Anderson and Caleb Manuel, who are, I think Cole's rated number 35 in the in the amateur standings in the world or in the country and Caleb isn't too far behind they're both playing in d1 schools and doing very well so the junior program has just really helped the kids gain experience and composure and when they start playing in the main amateur it's not that big a deal to them as it was maybe 25 30 years ago when when they were coming up and didn't have the experience that the kids have now are you are you more of a match play guy, stroke play guy? What I know the main am right now is is a stroke play event, but which is there something you prefer? And then are there any kind of tricks of the trade that you've learned over the years to kind of gain an an edge on on opponents, whether they're younger, or around your age? Those are kind of the two things I'd love to hear about. Yeah, one main amateurs at match play, and the first one I won was match play, and then they went back to metal play, and I won a few at metal play, and then they went back to match play again. And I kind, I like both, but match play is a, a much more relaxing format because you can have one terrible hole and you lose one hole instead of four shots. So it's it's a more relaxing format to play. I I still think that probably you get your Best player probably comes out of the of metal play events because you got to sustain your game for the two or three days, depending on what the event is. Where match play, you can just get lucky in an 18 hole match, kind of like I did at Newport. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, so it, it, I think the cream comes to the top more in the metal play tournaments. Any tricks of the trade that you have from? 
from your years of competitive golf, whether it's little gamesmanship or just things that you've kind of learned along the way to kind of sharpen your mind and your game and in, in competition? Yeah, not really. I, <laughs> I just, just the experience that I gained, but uh, no, I never got too much into gamesmanship or if I did, I didn't realize I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into Newport, but to get into those tournaments, you were you a guy in your in the seventies, eighties who signed up for every USGA? Did you look forward to the U.S. Open qualifying? Did you look forward to the USAM qualifiers? Did you do all that? Nah, not 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 so much. I I tried one year to qualify for the U.S. Open, and I made it to the. The last stage, I think it was down on Long Island, and needed to shoot, I think, 36 the last nine in the second round, and I shot 39 or 40, and I didn't make it. And that was that was my one and only attempt at the Open. The amateur, I tried a, a few times, not too many. It, I, I never was that interested in traveling, but I played in, I think, four or five U.S. amateurs, but it was never a... Never that big a deal. I had enough in New England, New England amateurs and stuff like that to keep me busy. I really didn't get too into the national stuff. The if it was in New England, the was in New England like it was eighty two at Brookline. I qual tried to qualify that year. I made it, and then of course Newport was also in New England. So figured that wasn't I could I could drive to it. And, but I wasn't really interested in traveling all over the country chasing something I knew I wasn't going to get. How come? Just in, just what what kept you close to home? Oh, I think I've always been kind of a homebody. I went to the University of Florida for a semester, and I, I just very comfortable back here in Maine. And I, I came back after a semester and went to the University of Maine. Just always, I've just just a homebody. I just I didn't wasn't into the the travel and I tried a mini tour back in seventy six fall of seventy six I think it was in the winter of seventy six and seven and I tried that mini tour route for all oh, three or four months and I just kind of came to the conclusion that a I wasn't good enough and b that even if I was it really wasn't a lifestyle that appealed to me. So, so you gotta, I came back home and I've been here ever since. So you got enough, of ta- you got a taste of that kind of lifestyle and it was just, the mini tour life is hard. I'm sure it's even harder kind of back in the seventies when travel is a little bit trickier. And so that's an interesting, I, I, I didn't know that, but it makes, it makes complete sense. And, and do, are you glad that you at least tried it? Do you think, are you a oh, person yeah, absolutely. who would have that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage any young person that had that inclination to, to give it a try because if you don't, you're just always going to have lurking in the back of your mind. Would I have made it? Could I have made it? So I, I tried it and I didn't make it and I'm at peace with, with that. But I, I would hate to have regrets having not have tried it. So I, I tried it, didn't make it and living without it. <laughs> So to a whole generation of golf fans who may not know what the 90s were quite like, maybe he, isn't, he wasn't Tiger Woods of, of the 2000s and 2010 and 16 or whatever. 
But he was still Tiger Woods in 1995. I believe he had won already four straight national championships, three juniors and the 94 USAM. You knew him. Everybody knew him and knew he was the real deal. So please tell me you didn't go down in Newport thinking, okay, I'm going to take this guy down. <laughs> no, not hardly. <laughs> I remember at the uh, they have a banquet the night before the tournament starts, and I was sitting at the table with Nota Begay, and he we we were talking and everything, and then I spotted Tiger. So anyway, I went over and just introduced myself to him because I wanted to meet him, and I had no idea that four days later I'd be playing him in the semifinals. But uh, yeah, he was he was a big deal then. He uh, just won the U.S. Amateur of the year before at Sawgrass. I think against Trip Caney, I'm Correct. not sure. But, uh, so no, he was he was he was the man, and uh, no, you know I had no, I was just hoping to maybe qualify for match play, and and that was about all I was shooting for when I went down there. You in so, so just getting to meet him was a big yeah. deal, but much less sure. get ended up playing against him. Your qualifying score was same as his, one forty three. You were pretty consistent. Yeah. I think you were 71. Uh, uh, what autonomy was the other course? Yep, one of them autonomy. And I'm not sure which one you, but you played them both equally yeah. consistent. What were you thinking going into match play? Oh, just sounds corny and cliche, but, you know, just one match at a time. And, of course, I was in fortunate in one way because I didn't know any of these guys. I knew who Tiger was, but I didn't know who. I, I probably couldn't have named 10 other players in the field. So I was playing against these guys who, if I'd known who they were, I'd probably been intimidated, but I didn't. So I just went out and won one match and then won another match. And before I know it, I'm playing Saturday morning, and the winner of the Saturday morning match was going to be playing Tiger ultimately in the afternoon, as it turned out. The fellow I was playing in the morning had me, I think, four down after 11 holes, or three down after Jason, 11 holes. Jason Enlow, I believe, right? Yeah, and unbeknownst to me, he, my caddy overheard him talking to his caddy on the 12th tee and he said well he says it looks like we're going to have tiger this afternoon and i didn't hear that he told me this after the fact but then i went and won the next five holes i think and <laughs> closed him out so when i when i heard he had made those remarks that was <laughs> did you mark did you did you look at the draw when it came out after 36 holes, It's you have all you can do to get in there. Even Tiger was shot 143, so it's not like he breezed in. 143 was good, but did you look at the the draw and said, man, I'm in the same side as Tiger? No, God, no. no. <laughs> okay. No, that was the furthest thing from my mind, yeah. Like I say, it's it, it sounds... Cliche, but it really, you're just playing one match. And I, I don't even think I knew Friday that if I won Saturday morning, that I'd have been playing them in the afternoon. I, I didn't, Impressive. I didn't get too far ahead of myself because I never expected to win the next match. I've, I've heard you talk about and, and read a little bit about just you mentioning the quick turnaround from beating Enlo and then finding yourself suddenly on the first tee. 
at Newport Country Club in the 100th USAM. Like, there's a lot of things kind of going on around. You're playing Tiger. You're 43 years old. You and Buddy Marucci might be kind of like the last two kind of stalwarts of of like an older older players who made it that far. It this is yeah. it's not it, this is not a normal thing anymore. Mainly it's college guys and Stu Hagestad who are yeah. who are making deep runs. But that quick turnaround was that it it feels like from what I've heard you say it was a benefit. You didn't have to kind of sleep oh. on thinking about playing Tiger. You just kind of showed up. You seem like a golfer who even with all of your all of your laurels has pretty low expectations and just likes to go and play golf. So what was it like getting to that first tee and playing Tiger and just the kind of the feelings that that you had? Well, I mean, it definitely was an advantage not having to sleep on on the fact that I was going to be playing them. That we had probably an hour between walking off the 18th green against the Jason Enlow to teeing off with Tiger in the afternoon. So, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty good about myself and had a, it was, I've never played in front of so many people. I think there was a couple thousand people there walking around with us and which was not what I was used to. <laughs> we, and he steps up on the, he had the honor on the first tee and he stepped up and hit it in the trees down on the right hand side. And I just kind of thinking to myself, this isn't really going to happen. Is it? I'm not going <laughs> to end up beating him. But uh, no, it was, it was, I was surprisingly calm. I, I really wasn't that nervous, which I, I know I would have been had I had to sleep on it. But uh, no, it just, it was kind of just a continuation of the morning match. And obviously a lot more, we didn't have anybody or a few people following the morning round, but the afternoon match was, I mean, we're on national TV. We got 2,000 people following us around. And I I don't know why, but I, I, I had a real calmness about about me, which I never would have thought I would have. But you, it, it, was, it was a fun match. I enjoyed it. it. Nobody ever got more than two up, and I got it to one, one up with one to play. And I had my chance, but I... Pushed the tee shot in the 18th hole into the heavy, heavy rough, and that was the end of the <laughs> the dream. I, I I do remember you win 16. I believe you two down, and then you you win 16. Yep. You may I believe you you made birdie too. So yep. I remember even though you were one down, it was like the sense of people watching and walking around was like they kind of forgot for a second the mark. Plummo's one down. They've, oh my lord! Look at it. He he just won sixteen, and it was almost like people forgot you were still one down because it, that put a that kind of put a sense of they plugged the electricity into the competition right there, and the people watching it. And I know because I was one of them. I was just a fan, and I was watching it. Yeah, well, there was a situation where, of course, he wasn't supposed to lose, so he probably felt more pressure at that point than I did because I wasn't supposed to win. So it was, I had nothing to lose. So I remember standing over a, about a 25-foot birdie putt on 17 that if I made it, tie it up, and I just missed it. But no, I, I at that point in the match, I actually felt that I, I might have a chance to win. And I, I didn't, obviously, but uh, as, the, as the match got 
going and we got to the back nine, I, I at points thought that this might happen, but he, he ended up ruling the day and he turned out to be a pretty good player. <laughs> he, I got, I was blessed to get a lot of tips from me that day. I think he paid attention to my swing and probably got a lot of helpful hints. I was blessed to watch him a lot and cover him. And I just, it just as the stars aligned. That was the, the era when I was covering pro golf PGA tour and it yeah. was Tiger. I mean, let's face it. He was, he went into every tournament he played and wondering who was going to finish second. And I remember asking him about you, and he was very jovial. He was like, oh, man, the mountain man and the the guy from Maine and that blah, blah, blah. He said he reminded me of Fluff Cowan. He was just another Maine guy. And the whole time I'm thinking, I know Tiger wasn't that jovial the day he played Mark Plummer because Tiger Tiger had the game face on the second he put the peg in the ground in number one. But yet, there had to be moments when, during the, that match, when he was fun and a little, not lighthearted, but he acknowledged who he was playing. Well, not, I, we didn't really have any conversation during the round. I mean, there's so many people there that you, you weren't, didn't like you were walking just the, you and your caddy and he and his caddy walking down the fairway alone. I mean, there's so many people, and of course, they didn't have, ropes up and people just walking (laughs) so i didn't there wasn't any any chatter really between the two of us i mean it was very good nice shot good pot stuff like that but not really any conversation he was he was pretty into it he had you know he had back then he had his psychologist caddied for him and i remember before the round he was in another room meditating and there was a Big contrast between he and I. <laughs> I'm there shooting the crap with my buddies, and he's in another room meditating. It's just a really quite a quite a contrast, him versus me. And I think that's what a lot of the fans liked about it. It was it was the kind of the old the small town guy from the hillbilly from Maine against this mature, poised. U.S. amateur champion, Stanford golfer, soon to be pro, and it was kind of a David and Goliath type thing that the fans, I think, enjoyed. And I, I sensed going around, but by the time the match was over, that I think as many people or maybe more people were rooting for me than for him. But uh, agreed, it, it was agreed. just a great day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. Uh, I think you were winning am- state amateur titles before Tiger was born which is like a, a very kind of just great dynamic and what makes amateur golf so great and what makes the, the sport so great. You just kind of touched on the, the crowd. Did you feel like that crowd, you were, as a New Englander, as the underdog, what was pulling for you? Was there Were there moments where you could feel like they were pulling for Tiger and they weren't necessarily pulling for you? What was that dynamic like just playing in front of that many people with a, a star like Tiger? No, I, I felt... I felt like they were pulling for me. I really did. It's like any underdog. I think people always like to root for underdogs. One funny story, we got done, I think it was the 12th hole, 13th, I was a par three, and I had to go to the bathroom, so they had the the porta potties there. So anyway, Tiger, 
I had finished putting out, and Tiger had about a 30-footer. So anyway, I took off to the outhouse and did my thing and came, went back, and my caddy came over, and I said, how'd Tiger do? He says, well, he said he knocked it up about four feet, and I gave it to him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, actually, yeah, he he two-putted. But we had a good laugh out of that, and it was a, it was just a light, enjoyable round of golf. It really it really was. I had a lot of friends down from Maine, and I was talking with them on the way around, and it just kept the situation a little bit lighter. But it's twenty eight years later, Mark. Do you still people, you know, still ask you about it up in when you're playing oh. in tournaments in Maine? And oh yeah, yeah, really? it's, that's uh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of funny. I've won a bunch of Maine amateur titles and a couple of New England amateurs. And the one thing that I'm known for is losing a match down in Newport, <laughs> Rhode Island. <laughs> but I never get tired of people asking me and talking about it. It was just a great experience that I just was very fortunate to have. That's awesome. Did it? And I would imagine I I know you've play golf with both president, former president Bushes and, and just what kind of doors did that experience in 95 open for you as a golfer opportunities, invites, maybe friendships, rounds of golf with, with various people that if Mark Plummer shoots 155 at Newport, uh, he goes back home to Augusta and his life doesn't change as much maybe, or, or it's some golf experiences are a little bit different. Is there anything from that week that opened the door or was it, is this, are some of those opportunities because you've been such a dominant main amateur golfer? Yeah, I, I think as far as the President Bush, the elder, forty-one. I don't, I don't think it made any difference as far as that. We, I knew him and had played golf with him, and we just—it was a friendship. Just, just kind of, we struck, hit it off well the first time we played, and he. Invited me down a little while after that, and oh god, I probably played golf, probably played 20, 25 rounds of golf with him over the yeah. years. And he would have his, uh, he'd call them his name droppers. He'd have guys like Freddie Couples and Davis Love, Jim Nance would come up. He had a whole, I, I could list a whole bunch of them that he'd have up to Walker's Point, and he'd always, and Brad Faxon, he'd always invite me down to to play with them and join the group and sometimes we'd even have a couple groups and we'd go back to Walker's Point and have dinner and it was just a he was just a wonderful man and he and Barbara and my wife and I got to be good friends and had a couple private dinners with him and kept up a relationship with him until he passed away and ended up going to the funeral, H.W.'s funeral in, at the National Cathedral in Washington, and ran into Freddie Couples, who was one of the first guys I'd seen, and he remembered me. We played together at Cape Arundel, and so we got talking, and anyway, he had a bunch of people that he introduced me to. He had Albert Pujols was there, and I didn't know I didn't know who Albert Pool I knew who Albert Pujols was, but I didn't recognize him because he didn't have on his baseball uniform. <laughs> so I said, Freddie, I said, who's that guy sitting behind you? So he says, that's Albert Pujols. I'll introduce you. So he introduced me to Albert Pujols, and he said, yeah. Freddie says, Mark's won 13 main amateur titles. And 
Elvis said, oh, wow. I said, yeah. I said, that's kind of like being the best skier in Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) You get a kick out of that. Mike Krzyzewski was sitting right beside him and he started laughing and we had a, we had a good chuckle, but like a who's who of sports people and the president planned it all out, the funeral thing and had all the athletes sitting together. Jack Nicholas was there, Greg Norman, the commissioner, Lerwin. I mean, I could go on and on who was there, and but he was nice enough to make sure that my wife and I were sitting right in the middle of them. So we got, uh, there was a couple hours that you just kind of stood around waiting for the service to set. So it was a great chance to kind of mingle and talk to a lot of these great golfers and other athletes, Peyton Manning. I mean, it was, it was a who's who. That's amazing. Amazing with golf. Amazing the game of golf, Mark. Oh, it sure is. Amazing. Yeah, it's a great, great game, a great way to meet people and network if you're into the business part of it. And it's it's just been a wonderful opportunity that I've been given. And it's still going on for you. You're still, you're still pretty competitive, and we wish you nothing but great success the rest of the summer. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Thanks to Mark Plummer. That was a great interview hearing a bunch of awesome stories from, uh, from his past. Uh, golf is golf is the best. Now, Golf Course Confidential. I picked out a golf course this week, the gym you have not played. I have not, no. You have maybe a, a recollection of just being there at some point or knowing about it a I little think, bit. I think I remember a little bit of the story when they were building it. I'm, I'm not sure how old it is. I'm trying to remember... It is. Wow. It was. It was bought um, in the. I don't have it right in front of me here, but we're talking about Kettlebrook in Paxton, right. Mass. Uh, don't want to bury the lead here. Uh, Paxton is. A, I guess it's Central Mass. It's a good. It's a good drive from uh, from anywhere close to where we live in uh, in Boston. Um, Kettlebrook is a just a. A lot of people think it's a top public course in the state. Um, and if I've it was in great a great thing about it, yeah, I do know that. And if it was an easier place to find, um, and get to, it might, uh, get a little bit more, more attention from, from, from some, uh, from some golfers, Brian Silva design. Um, I think it's a late 90 built in maybe the late nineties. Okay. Um, as I was reading on, on the website, uh, just to get a sense, it used to be a dairy farm. Um, and the, it's owned by the same people who own Wachusa Country Club, the Marone okay. family. And the Marone family has owned Wachusa since 1939, at least according to Kettlebrook's website, which blew my mind that the same family has been uh, the owners yeah. of Wachusa for, for do, that long. I do it's know World Wachusa War II. is a strong golf course. It's a great place, too. Um, that will definitely be on this uh, segment at some point in the future, another one of my favorites. But Kettlebrook is... Kind of just, just kind of beefy, big public golf course. Uh, it stretches out to sixty nine hundred yards. Um, it's Brian Silva. A lot of the times, loves to build golf courses that end up in like you end up playing in a few different spots. Um, the land kind of is very different. The first eleven holes at Kettlebrook are hilly. Uh, you're in tree line fairways, huge bunkers. Um, 
it feels really New England. Kind of right. some downhill dog legs. <clears throat> uh, you're hitting to like a, a plateau and then down to a green. Um, I played this in, I think it was November of maybe 21. It was freezing cold. It was kind of miserable just weather-wise, but I really enjoyed playing it. I got to go back and play it. And then you play the 12th hole. The 12th hole and the 13th are probably the two holes. If you have any, um, if you follow anybody on Instagram um, or Twitter, these are kind of the two kind of, I guess, signature holes. The 12th is right by the clubhouse. It's a par three. It's a long par three. And the 12th gets you kind of to the parking lot. And then you walk across and the dairy farm, which is what the land used to be, is kind of flatter. Okay. You play 13 through 18. Um, 13 has the, there's a barn and kind of like a silo. It's a drivable par four. And it's just a really good golf course. Um, it's hard if you want to make it hard. If you want to choose the right tees and play it up a little bit, um, you can tee it up and play it up. And it's, I looked up the prices. You can walk it on the weekend for 55 to $75. So if you want to tee off kind of in the afternoon, twilight time, you can get out for 55 bucks. If you want to play peak at 75, um, Monday to Thursday, if you want to walk, you can walk it for 45 bucks. Again, they've okay. got those kind of twilight times. That's a really good price to yeah, play it, golf in this. Nowadays, state. It, it it's, sure it's, is. it's very good. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to find anywhere that you can walk for under 60 throw. Obviously, if you want to throw a card in, it's usually 20 extra bucks. Um, yeah, so really good golf course. There's a couple holes. If, you, if you're if you not a fan of like maybe trees being in the middle of fairways or blocking your view to a green, uh, there are two holes there, the 10th and maybe the 7th is a par 5 with a tree uh, kind of blocking your second shot if you want to go for it. Kind of, kind of a silver. A little bit of a silver staple. I've um, never, I've actually never minded it. He used to have one at Ocean Edge from Emily on the Cape. Never, okay. never been a – it's never – been a um never bothered you like never centerline a, trees never been a turnoff to me okay no. okay i like that 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 might be a topic for another day but I, that's a uh, it depends on how they're done these two are fine um the par five is a little quirky it's a short par five so it's kind of like the defense of the hole and then also just kind of a great energy to the place there's a good bar um, the 12th hole is this, when you, when you're walking up, you'd actually think the 12th hole is the 18th hole when you first get yeah. there. Cause it's right by the clubhouse. The 18th green is on the other side. Um, I finished playing this, I finished playing Kettlebrook in the dark. So, uh, my buddies and I had actually headlamps on, um, as we came up 17 and 18, cause it was, right. it was, we teed off at maybe noon and it was getting dark, maybe one o'clock and it was, it was getting dark. Um, but just the the energy of the place is really great. I would assume on a summer day, people are kind of sitting out in the Adirondack, cha- Adirondack chairs, watching people come in on 12, watching people play 18. Um, so if you are kind of adventurous and you want to go for a drive, um, go out to Paxton, check out Kettlebrook. It is a, a really good, solid golf course. It's got all the kind of silver quirks, some big greens, punch bowls. Um, you'll hit a bunch of different kind of shots, and you'll walk through a bunch of different kinds of land, which I always kind of appreciate you feel like you're almost in two different places um as you're playing it so kettlebrook paxton mass uh probably very pretty in the fall as well um out in that area get some good uh get some good leaf peeping in as you play so go go check out kettlebrook golf club in paxton mass thanks for listening to on course the new england golf journal podcast please as always rate review subscribe 
on your preferred platform. Thanks to Dave Yaz for producing the podcast and making it sound like we know what we're talking about. And the Encore's podcast is a Siemens Media production. Thank you.